Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella, Mumbrella Cast. Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Tim Burrows. Joining me to break down the week in media and marketing is, well, everyone, including our editor Vivian Kelly. Hello. Our news editor Paul Wallbank. Hello. Our senior agencies reporter Abigail Dawson. Hello. I feel like I'm going up an octave each time. Our <laughs> senior media reporter Zoe Samios. That wasn't up an octave, hello. <laughs> and our deputy editor Josie Tutty. <laughs> and our kind of guest this week will be Viv, who will help us dig a little bit later into the results of our State of the Industry survey, which we shared uh, just a few days ago. But first, the week's topics. Mergers and exits in the first week of Nine's marriage to Fairfax. WPP's massive restructure. Hungry Jacks recruits the pen pineapple apple pen guy. I'm glad you had to say that one. And 10 caves in on its boss Grand battle. So this week was Nine's first week trading with Fairfax's media assets, also as part of the family. And there are a few, few changes of foot, Zoe. A few, a few redundancies as we went along. A few mergers. Um. So, um. Yeah. Talk us through the first week. It's been a very busy first week. This week, I think the best place to start is Monday, which was the first official trading day for Nine, which in great style featured interviews with CEO Hugh Marks in the new t- Mastheads, the AFR and the Sydney Morning Herald, a great way to start under new ownership. They certainly welcomed their new overlords. They did. They did. That was quickly followed by the announcement of the merged sales team, which will be operated by Michael Stevenson. And under him are a number of executives uh, one of the executives to move across from Fairfax is Matt Rowley, who used to be the chief revenue officer for Fairfax Metro. He will now run publishing sales. He is joining Pip Leary, who was already at Nine. She's been promoted to director of sales strategy and product commercialization. There's Richard Hunrick, director of TV sales, Warwick Sharp, director of sales operations, and Lizzie Young, who's Nine's group content strategy director. So that is the executive sales team. And then under them, obviously, there are a number of nine people and I'm sure a few Fairfax people have moved across as well. And any surprises in the changes we know of so far? I don't think anything's a surprise. I think nine really got on the front foot last week, announcing that 92 people would be impacted uh, in the redundancy process. I think it was fairly clear where those redundancies were going to be. I do believe, though, that and, – and we did see this week as well the merger of Pedestrian Group and Alua Media, which owns titles like Pop Sugar, Gizmodo, Business Insider, come together. And we did see some journo jobs go there. We did. And I, I would say that the journos within them probably – were surprised, maybe not as surprised as people who have been watching this merger take uh, or progress. Certainly for me, it was an area where if you want to talk about synergies, there was a lot of different specialist titles and there was going to need to be consolidation. But whether or not, I mean, Nine had promised that they weren't going to to get rid of journalists. Or actually, I think the words were not impacting Fairfax newsrooms, which I'm now thinking is careful wording. Well, I mean, with the Alua and pedestrian merger and the resulting job losses, Nine is very keen to tell you that this is a problem that they inherited, to which I would say, well, no, it's a problem that you bought. 
you didn't just happen to come across Fairfax's issues, you actively bought Fairfax's issues. And they'll tell you that those journos would have lost their jobs anyway. Fairfax would have made those cuts. Nine is very keen not to be the bad guy here. Unfortunately for them, it's not Fairfax making the cuts. Whether it was going to happen or not is, for want of a better word, redundant. They are the ones that are doing it. They can't shirk responsibility here and and blame the old guard. It's happening under them. Those journos are going to be looking at it that way and certainly the media is going to be looking at it that way. They're the ones who told those journos. They're the ones who own the company. It falls on them really. Definitely, and I think – There's also been a big debate in that merger of who's got the stronger brand. Is it Pedestrian under the founders Chris Wirasina and Oscar Martin or is it those big global brands in Pop Sugar, Gizmodo and Business Insider that while a strong perhaps don't have the local presence that they might have globally? And I've actually, talking to a number of people, have found people are very divided on that thinking, oh, well, I would have thought Pedestrian was going to go versus oh, I thought uh, Pop Sugar or, or, or Gizmodo are not very strong and that's inevitable. So you're finding that there's definitely people have very different views, but I think Pedestrian for Nine, which they, they only bought the remainder stake in in Pedestrian for, for almost $40 million this year, that is a massive area of growth for them. From a revenue perspective, it brings in a lot of money. So it would make sense for them then to build up and around the pedestrian group, which they see is a massive asset, and then fold in other assets which they may perceive as not as strong. Well, also, it's, it's, it's a local brand they own. Exactly. Whereas the franchise model on the other side, you know, it it, 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 it sort of made, 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 maybe made more sense at a time when there was more just a display advertising play where if you could just get some traffic in, you could sell it. So sort of, you know, perhaps sort of eight years ago or something like that. So I, I'm a bit surprised it's still around, to be honest, some of those brands. I did I did think it was um, an interesting moment. Chris Jans, who founded Allure Media some time ago, who who is now actually the head of publishing at Nine, and under his new leadership, the brand that he once founded is being folded in. I just think that that is a sign that times really are changing. It's all come full circle. Um, and he's now leading that business and and, and the Allure brand is, is, is going to be no more. Look, I suppose the thing to acknowledge is that in the scheme of things compared to some mergers, the number of job losses is relatively low. Yes. So far. So far. So far. So everything... So that's suggesting, do you, do you think there's more to come then? Is that what you're suggesting? Well, I'm I'm not sure. I think it is a wait and see thing and I think that the changes at the moment are being drip fed and, and Nine would be the first to admit that they can't do everything at once. They have to focus on bringing the teams together, looking for Zoe's favourite word, synergies, moving them all into that office eventually in North Sydney where they'll be co-located. I don't think Nine's pretending they've solved the issues a couple of weeks into, well, in the first week of trading. Look, when they said 92 or three jobs out of 6,000, obviously you're going to go, oh, that's small. And obviously for the time being, as Viv Viv mentioned, that might be it. And and Nine's been very, very careful to say every announcement this week is in that 92 that they announced a week ago. But as with anything, I think I I read a tweet this week from Miriam, Miriam Robin who works at the AFR who basically said they only had recently found the extra 10 million in synergies from Alua Media, which 
when I thought about it, I went, oh, gee, I remember writing something on Friday about $15 million of additional cost savings. So it, it seems like they're finding it as they go along. And I suspect that there will come a point where that number will have to increase. And usually that's the sort of thing that will come out perhaps on the la- uh, late on Friday afternoon on the last trading day of the year, perhaps. Potentially, which Viv, if it's after five, will be on news desk. Yay. <laughs> yes, if anybody likes to send any any story, stories over Christmas and all year, Vivian at mumbrella.com.au has the pleasure of the Christmas and New Year <laughs> news desk. Next, more changes at WPP. So there were some big global changes coming out of WPP in London this week as the holding group announced that it will be resizing. And by resizing, they mean self-small making <laughs> and disposing of underperforming businesses. Uh, meanwhile, the old boss, Sir Martin Sorrell, was throwing a few bombs. The senior management of WPP have not visited Asia or Latin America at all, at all, in the last six months. One, one exception, China. One exception. Now, if people are criticizing me for saying that, I think it's wrong. It's not the way to run a multinational business or an international business. You have to get, if you're going to make structural changes that result, according to one of the headlines, in losing 7,500 jobs out of 135,000 jobs, you have a responsibility to visit those places. And somebody wrote me a note saying that JWT in Argentina has gone down by 60%. I take that to heart. I don't, I don't do that. If it was me, I would take that very seriously to heart. You have a responsibility to visit those people, explain what you're doing, and if you have to take any shots for doing it, you have to take some shots for doing it. So, Paul and Abby, both of you, um, what's going on at WPP? So WPP have decided they're going to restructure against four key pillars um, on the business of communications, experience, commerce and technology. Now, uh, this was a really fun uh, release full of lots of buzzwords and uh, you can't help but think that they're listening to their ex um their ex-leader uh, on uh, refocusing around that technology and branding offering. Maybe Abs, just talk us through who the ma- their main assets in Australia are. So some of their main assets across media, PR and creative, you've got OPR, which was formerly Ogilvy PR, Ogilvy. You've got Group M, which is their their media side of the business, which includes agencies like Media Common Wavemaker. You've got White Grey, VML, YNR, which was VML and YNR. And then PPR is another is another PR business. So they're just some of the agencies that that that, that they've got there, but. To Paul's point, you know, he was talking about WPP, you know, resizing. And and for me, I sort of – and merging the the tech with creative. And for me, that's something that I think should already have been done or should have been done quite some time ago. And it's something that agencies have have been doing for a while already. And to me, it feels like for WPP, it's too little, too late. And they're not changing to get ahead of the game and changing to be innovative. They're changing to stay relevant. And I think that's a really, really difficult, uh, a a dangerous game rather to be playing. It feels a bit that the, the model for WPP over the years used to be very much keep acquiring, buy new stuff, use that to create new profits, then go out and look for the next acquisition target. feels like the music stopped on that. 
Correct. And I, and I think that's sort of where you can see the different leaders there. That was very much so Sir Martin Sorrell's tactic with WPP and, and Mark Reeds, who's the CEO of WPP now. His tactic is very much so consolidation. And we've seen that this year with VML YNR and Wonderman Thompson. And I suspect we will continue to see that. But that's something that takes a lot of time. And if there is going to be more consolidation, which there is, that is something that is going to take WPP a lot of time. And the question that you have to ask then is a client's going to wait for your for their agency to transition through this period and find their feet or are they going to go somewhere else? And I think it's going to be a really telling time for WPP's clients. The other thing that I'd have to say as well is talent is such a huge issue within the media and marketing industry. And I think WPP will really struggle to attack to attract top new talent as well while they're going for this transition period because it just feels like it's slow and it's a little bit further behind the rest of the agencies in the industry or a lot of, I should say. And going back to that structural thing, uh, Mark Reed in his um, announcement did say that the whole structure of WPP was unwieldy. So, uh, so yeah, they really are looking at simplifying that structure. And to, to build on that, uh, couple of weeks ago, maybe even a month ago now, we saw Sunita Gloucester join WPP in the newly created role of Chief Customer Officer. And that's a new role for WPP. And that to me signifies that they are changing at the top WPP level, not just within the agencies, the leadership structure. And it sort of signifies to me that they're really leveraging their WPP one model. So when, you know, the agency wins clients such as WPP and they they pull talent from each different agency, that's something that has seemed to work for them a little bit more this year. And I think that indicates that they're going to be focusing on that and also almost having a C-suite at the top of WPP, like some of those management consultancies work with. And it to me feels like they're starting to structure it more like that. It's also interesting with that that uh, WPP AUNZ as a separate entity from WPP PLC is problematic as well. That, uh, for instance, I was genuinely surprised that there wasn't an announcement on the ASX because it is a completely separate company and this restructure is market sensitive. That uh, there was no, there has been no announcement um, that we've seen as yet. So I, you've got to wonder where is this that going to go? Where is that? This is thirty nine percent that's uh, outstanding that's floating on the stock market. Uh, where does that go with uh, the global group? Because that's that's got to be a big change as well. Something else that was a bit of a red flag, if you like, when I, I saw the news and, and the release was the fact that they've said that they want to make WPP, in quotes, a more client-centric organisation. And this is something where I sort of have to sit back and I think, well, if you weren't client-centric before, what were you doing? And, and why is it only now that you've decided that you need to be client-centric? I think that's something that agencies have been doing for a really long time. And just on that point, Abby, Mark Reid has come out and said, we are repositioning WPP as a creative transformation company with a simpler offer to meet the present and future needs of clients. Again, they should have already been meeting the present and future needs of clients and reading through their five-page release about their new structure and their new identity, 
it's not a simpler offer. It's really quite complex. If you can't say it in one page, if you've got to take five pages to tell me what you stand for and what you're doing and that you're a creative transformation company, then you haven't simplified it. You've complicated it. I think they're trying to almost identify WPP while acknowledging all the agencies that are still within WPP and what's changing. So I think that that really is something that they're going to struggle with and clearly already are struggling to identify WPP while paying homage to its its history and also the agencies that it has now. And just one other global point, Paul, um, Kantar. Well, this is interesting too because Kentar was one of the original um, homegrown, if you like, uh, WPP operations, having been uh, launched in 1993 by uh, Sir Martin Sorrell. And um, rather than being an acquisition, it was uh, it started in house. And this was a research house. That's right. So this was a research and data house. They're looking at uh, selling off the majority stake in that, uh, flagging that they'll keep some minority. But uh, I thought it was quite an interesting and maybe, dare one say, brave move, um, given that they're trying to refocus into this data and um, uh, data side of the business, and yet they're getting rid of uh, that first-party data source that they've got there. But I do think that that should already be instilled within your agencies. So I think Mm. having a separate agency for that is almost redundant, and it's not what clients want. Clients aren't looking to have eight, seven, eight different agencies on their rosters at the moment. They're really looking to sort of consolidate. And I think that's that's why is because that data should already be within those creative agencies. And just before we move out of that, uh, I have to say that that media release had my favourite uh, buzzword of omnichannel. And there's a certain PR who'll be listening to this that she will agree on that too. Next. Well, there's this. I'm hungry. I have pineapple. I have a whopper. Uh, whopper pineapple. I have a barbecue. I have a summer. Uh, summer barbecue. Whopper pineapple. Summer barbecue. Uh, Sama barbecue pineapple apa? Hungry Jack's time. So it is a scientifically proven fact that any food can be improved with the addition of pineapple. Fake news. That is just a fact. And Hungry Jack's agrees with me. But, Abby, what the hell did we just hear? So... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I feel a bit bad saying this because now I understand the context of it. I don't think it I I don't think it was as bad as I thought when I first watched it. But I watched this on Friday and I will admit I was a little bit dusty after our next awards and I sat there and I watched it and I took my headphones off and I said to Jose who sits next to me and I said that has to be the worst ad I have ever seen. And she looked across, to, across at me and, she and goes, I went, oh, my God, it's the pen pineapple apple pen guy. And I now think it's one of my favourite ads of the year. So we have very different reactions to that. So we, we might need a little context <laughs> for those who are unfamiliar with, is yeah. his name Pic- Picotaro? Yeah, so Picotaro, um, he it was a viral hit on YouTube. I believe his original video has around 53 million more views. than 100 million i looked earlier oh god okay well yeah it's, it's a lot of views he basically has a 
pen and a pineapple and an apple and a pen and he puts them all together to become pen pineapple apple pen and that's basically it i can't really explain it any better than that um but what has happened is hungry jacks have taken picotaro um and used him to help sell their new burger the summer barbecue pineapple burger (laughs) so this ad was created by 11 and their their content um Bot. That's interesting. So not a traditional creative agency. No. So so it's not a TV ad. It's it's an ad that's that's going across social. Uh and it is definitely now that I know the context, I mean I take it back. I don't think it was the worst ad I've ever seen, <laughs> but I do think it is a risk because I think that you will still have a lot of people that look at that and think what the hell is this? What I think is really interesting is it's obviously designed to be a social and a and a PR campaign basically and it's almost the start of Hungry Jack's playing in the same space that a lot of the US fast food brands play in with Wendy's, McDonald's, they're always getting stories written about them about their funny tweets that they've been doing and they're, they're really doing well in terms of the social side of things so I think this is Hungry Jack's trying to play in that space the original video has uh, 1.3 million views on Facebook already already um, and it's only been up for a week oh, mind you Facebook are they proper views well we could debate <laughs> that that's a that's a debate for another day but um it's definitely caught the attention of a lot of people and I think that it, that it it is it is obvious to me now that this is a PR-led campaign and I, I'm not for one second suggesting that that is a bad thing, but it really gives Hungry Jacks a personality and that's something that PR agencies and brands endeavour to do and, and even ad agencies as well are definitely endeavouring to do. But I think this really makes Hungry Jacks stand out. It gives it humour, a brand personality, a bit of a voice in, in the market and to me I think that's a really, really smart move. Well, I'll be buying one and I don't even eat meat anymore. <laughs> They've got a vegan burger now, so you're all right. Can I have pineapple on that instead? <laughs> Next. Better, bold than bossy? So this week, 10 caved into legal pressure from AFR Bosses Magazine's new owner, 9, and changed the name of its digital channel again. Zoe, this one seems like a little bit of an omni-shambles. Well, it depends on on the way you look at it. I think Nine's taking it a lot more seriously than Ten, based on a certain press release that I think Viv and I spent an entire Uber talking about this week. Basically, for those that haven't been listening to our podcast, obviously there was a, a bit of tension in the last few weeks between what was Fairfax Media and Channel 10 over 10's new multi-channel, 10 Boss. Which replaced um, 10's previous Channel 1. Yes, exactly. So basically the argument was around, there was there was a problem with trademarking. AFR Boss basically said, or there was insinuation that by having the multi-channel on air with Boss, people will think that the two brands are associated, which 10 completely disagrees with, but that was the crux of it. There are also problems with trademarking in certain different categories as well. Now, that's one of the things, though, isn't it? You know, it's a fact that the owner of the trademark, Boss, in media was Fairfax. That was inarguable. Yes. So it seems massively amateurish not for them to have realised that that was an issue. You know, I, I know they put out a sassy press release and, hey, they're making light of it, you know, better, you know, 
better, bold than bossy and all of that sort mm. of thing. But I just, and I, th- this is based on chatting to a media agency boss this week who said, yeah, it's all very well, but what must their owners in the US think when they look at that and they just see that bodged effort of a rebrand? I think two things happened in this situation. Either one, they were completely oblivious to the fact that Boss was trademarked and that there might be a complication. I hope it's not that. The other it could be is they were aware of the trademarking but thought that there was enough of a loophole for them both to have that name, one trademarking 10 Boss, while uh, Fairfax Media had AFR Boss Boss and AFR Boss Magazine as trademarks. They must have thought that they would get away with it. What we've seen is that that's simply not the case. And while it was all very entertaining to read Ten's release, which was very on brand with their cheeky fun side, although very different to Nine's statement, which was which which was more it's a matter of the court. We appreciate the gesture, but it's actually a court um, case at the moment. Um, yeah, it, 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 it is a bit of a mess. And I'd agree, Tim. It really is sloppy work on Ten's part. And uh, in my in a previous life, I wrote a couple of small business books. And this is an early chapter. Uh, you go on to IP Australia and check the trademarks before you get ordered to take this all down. There's also a big problem, really, with the whole trademark system in Australia is that we've got these different classes. And this particular class is 41, which is education, providing of training, entertainment, sporting and cultural activities, which pretty well I think covers about 35% of the Australian economy in that one class. Out of 35 classes, you've got um, only 11 classes for the services industry and 34 for goods and services, including my favourite, which is number four, industrial oils, greases, wax, lubricants, candle wicks for lighting. Now, Paul, you're you're actually, I I know something of an expert on uh, intellectual property. A a podcast from a week or two ago that I've been meaning to follow up with you, I might as well just ask you here now that I thought of it. I wasn't uh, wasn't around for the recording, but you mentioned the fact that you own a couple of trademarks yourself on that podcast. What are the trademarks and Uh, why is this? The trademark is PC Rescue, and it's my, my old computer so support PC business. PC Rescue. PC Rescue, yeah, my old computer support business. And, uh, yep, that is trademarked, and I still own it. Uh, you get the trademark for 10 years. So you used to be at IT Help Desk? Yeah, damn, damn right I did. Um, that's a very long uh, – we could uh, spend an entire podcast on that. Um, but, yeah, uh, yeah so uh, I've been through the trademark process myself, and uh, it's a very interesting – but, again, I mean, I did that myself as a small mum-and-pop suburban um, computer help desk thing. Ten, with all of its lawyers and uh, CBS behind it, didn't do those basic checks, which – as I say, a suburban business should be doing. And I'll be very disappointed when it comes to listening back to this if in the edit we haven't included a clip of somebody asking if they've turned it off and then on again. Hello, IT. Have you tried turning it off and on again? Next, the state of the industry. So let's talk about us. On Thursday last week, our editor Vivian Kelly, who's still with me, was on stage at Mumbrella's next event, revealing some of the findings from our giant state of the industry survey, which people may remember filling out uh, the email survey for. Um, Now, Viv, maybe before we get into the detail of the survey, which which you presented to a fully engaged audience, I do have to put it to you, and this is based on LinkedIn accusations, that you were guilty of a crime against gender diversity during your appearance on stage. Yes, look, that is an accusation that has been 
levied at me. For those of you who weren't there, the way that the event worked was I presented some of the findings of the state of the industry survey for about half an hour. And then I brought a panel of four people to join me on stage to dissect what that information might mean and look to the future. On that panel was the CEO of Omnicom Media Group, Peter Horgan, who is correct, a man, the CMO of Budget Direct, Jonathan Kerr, also a man, and the CEO of Clemenger BBDO Sydney and Melbourne, the male that is Nick Garrett, and also Kim Portrait, the CEO of Think TV. At Mumbrella, we try so hard to have gender balance on our stages and as much as we can at our events. If you look at that panel in isolation, it is 75% man and that is a valid criticism. However, I would contend that I was a part of that panel as well and when there are five people on stage, if you're only looking at the two traditional, for want of a better word, genders being male and female, you can't split five people and make it 50-50. No, it would be more 60-40 if my maths is right. So So why why did this become an issue then? uh, It was brought to my attention by somebody else actually. So Jackie Crossman, who heads up Red Agency, which is a PR agency in Australia, posted about how one of the facts I had identified in the research was about whether or not people perceive the industry and their management to be a boys club. And she shared a photo of the panel to demonstrate that Mumbrella was presenting this research, but not doing enough in the gender equality space by having a 75% male panel. Hang on, you say 75%, surely the photo would have showed all five of you, wouldn't well, it? Well, um, fortunately, unfortunately, I was not included in this particular photograph, which is what I took issue with because I think if you're just going to frame me as unimportant and, and, and a moderator who simply asked questions, I don't I don't think that was I don't think that's fair. I think I was a very key part of that event. So if you're gonna come at us, a hundred percent correct, we were not fifty percent female, even when you include me. But it was a bit of fake news for me, that photograph where I'm not included and you're sharing a misleading image of in what fairness, the event was about. If you look really closely in the right hand side one, uh, and you can obviously see the image has been zoomed, but you can just see your shadow. Well, maybe. <laughs> if only the camera had just been a tiny bit wider, it might have been able to squeeze yes, you in as well. That would have been a more accurate representation. And I think the the accusation frustrated me because I'd worked really hard to get the Mumbrella Next jury to be 50% women, which isn't easy when management at the top of Adland is nowhere near 50% women. And, and how did you go when you invited women to take part as jury? Did, well, was there anyone who had to decline? Well, look, there's, well, yes, Jackie Crossman uh, did decline, which which was interesting because to come at me for not having enough females when you're a female who couldn't attend is... Although she did attend in the end, but just sat in the audience. Is, is an interesting and complicated proposition. I'm not sure how she was at her Christmas party and in my crowd taking critical photos of me, but... That is the the magic of media, but... Nonetheless, in the spirit of Christmas, happy Christmas, Jackie. (laughs) Yes. Next year is a new year, and we will all work together on that same aim of um, uh, proper diversity of of gender, amongst others. Definitely, it is a cause that I will continue to work with to to improve. Shall we now get into the stats? Sure. (laughs) Um, 
look, I, I, I guess the hard thing is there's, there's so much data that comes from a survey like that and there's more we'll do with it in the future. So you have to sort of find a way of telling a few stories around a few pieces. Um, one of the ones that we, we, we talked about, or you talked a lot about on the night, was transparency. Yeah, look, transparency is the issue that just won't go away for Adland, whether they like it or not. And to my panel, I threw some sort of statistical genius or questionable stats that I tried to tie together to, to tell a story. So the way that the survey worked, certain industry segments had to respond to different questions so that we could see if there's a disconnect or find the tension. And media agencies were asked, do media agencies have issues around transparency? 81.96% of media agency respondents admitted that, yes, they still have a problem. Then these media agencies were asked, do marketers understand these issues? And 79.49% of these media agencies said, no, they don't. And they were also asked, are media agencies doing enough to rectify those issues? And the media agencies themselves, 78.85% admitted, no, they're not. So what I said to them was, well, you guys have admitted that you've got issues. You're pretty confident that marketers don't really understand what's going on and you know that you're not doing enough. So are you not doing enough because you know that your clients don't really understand the extent of the problem that you're perpetuating? And having asked the rhetorical question, what is your own opinion of the answer? I think 100%. You know, when anybody is the most knowledgeable person in the room, and that's clearly what media agencies think they are, they think they're more across transparency than their marketing clients, you get a sense of superiority and you're also, everyone's so busy, why would you act on something that a client paying you doesn't even know about doesn't care about because they think it's gone away or they don't understand the extent of the manipulation that's going on so it's hard to find a motivator for the media agencies if they know that their clients are going to keep on paying them and not asking questions well changing the topic slightly let's talk extinction another thing that we looked at in the survey was which mediums do our respondents think are likely to disappear in the next 10 years? Obviously, we tied this event to Mumbrella's 10th birthday. So the 10 years just been and the 10 years on their way was how we tied everything together. Now, 40% of our over 1,700 respondents think that print newspapers are going to be gone by Mumbrella's 20th birthday. The same number think that about print magazines 22% are getting ready for the demise of Foxtel or subscription television and only 0.29% of people think that the same fate awaits Netflix. So again, our own industry is predicting the demise of the mediums that they can currently advertise in but see a long and hopeful and prosperous future for Netflix which at the moment they can't advertise on. So the panel was much more optimistic than my statistics. So the panel took great joy in framing me as classic negative old mumbrella, but it wasn't me finding these stats. It was the industry speaking to them and they are predicting the demise of these mediums, but the panel's confident that where there's a will, there's a way and advertising will survive as long as we have great, fantastic people coming through and new opportunities will emerge at the same time as old opportunities disappear. So 
I guess we can have this conversation when Mumbrella turns 20 and, and see who was right. <laughs> well, we already have that music we always use when we go backwards in time, which we'll dig <laughs> in. <laughs> it's a little bit Scooby-Doo. That was a little bit Scooby-Doo, perhaps a little bit Wayne's World, somewhere between the uh, between the two. But thank you, Josie, for that contribution, in case you are. I'm completely silent up until now. <laughs> First thing I say. Um, so let's, um, let, let, let's just talk about what's on people's minds. What... What are the issues that people think about in their own working lives? So, look, we did ask the industry what the biggest threat to their job was in the next 10 years. 20% said good old artificial intelligence. Tying with that, 25% said automation. 28% said a new or unforeseen player. So not an extension of what already exists, something that we can't even imagine or conceptualise yet. But... The biggest three factors that people think will be the biggest threat to their Adland jobs in the next 10 years is still that thing that we've been worried about, certainly throughout my entire lifetime, and I'm sure before that as well, shrinking budgets, industry consolidation, which means mergers and redundancies, and global and economic instability. So whether or not that's because Adlan just hasn't come to grips with the impending robot apocalypse or whether it's because the threat of AI is overstated and actually what we need to worry about is the continued shrinking of Adlan, I'm not sure, but what's on people's minds is the same thing that's always been on their minds. And how about in their in their own lives, in their working lives? What what causes them angst? So we did ask people how much they worry about the following and had a list of everything from job security to the economy to world politics, but we also included in that things like your health and well-being and the ability to balance work and family and all those things that websites write about all the time, can you have it all? Whilst quite a lot of people were worried about things like job security or staying up to date with technology, the responses that they could have were always, often, sometimes, rarely or never. And when you did a top two box response, so that is the people who responded always and often, that actually really shifted the results and it became 69% worrying quite consistently if not always, about health and well-being, and 62% stressing about work-family balance. And also emerging from the data was the importance of company culture when choosing a new role. That came ahead of pay packet. So it's clearly something that's stressing out people in Adland. They want a good workplace culture and a healthy life slightly more then they want a good pay packet. Well, which is a good um, uh, position to bring in um, Josie as well. Josie, you you wrote a a guest piece. I'm not sure I can describe it as a guest piece when you work for us, <laughs> but an opinion piece for us this week, in which you 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 sort of shared a view on an aspect of um, the healthy lifestyle and the challenge of living that when you're also working in media. Yeah, so I wrote this piece over the weekend, which I happened to be working a few days after our next event. Um, I, I was suffering from a two-day hangover, so I th- thought I, I would prefer to write an opinion piece than to write all the other stuff that I knew that I had to do. Um, but that wasn't the only reason. Um, it, it was playing on my mind because we drink at a lot of events um, and it, it's not just Mumbrella, it's it's journalism but it's also Adland um, 
agencies are constantly having parties and drinking and you know it's just an accepted part of the industry and it's something that a lot of people find a positive thing about the industry and it's something especially the younger people is seen as a perk and it's seen as a reason why you would want to work somewhere and something the comments thread seemed to be going back to a lot once we published the piece was that for a lot of young people it's almost used as a way to pay them less because they're they're, you know they're getting perks they're having fun parties they're getting drinks for free certainly one of the things that strikes me as well is we're an event organizer We, we we put on events we have events that include alcohol and one of the things i've really noticed is Sometimes it just depends how we're paying the venue. If you're paying for a certain number of bottles of wine, for instance, it's one thing. But when you're paying what they call on consumption, which in other words means that each time one of your guests is served a drink, there's a charge. The venues are massively incentivized to pour as much alcohol down people's throats as possible. And the number of times I've sort of... I've I've even walked in at my own events and looked looked along all of those trays. There's the, the there's the wines, there's the beers, there's a, the the champagnes, and there's not there's no water. And I've even done it at my own my own events where I've sort of you know just just sort of gone on and they would just thought I'm a punter and said oh can I have water please? They're like, they're like oh, over the bar over there and they'll send you away and you've got to say, oh, excuse me can I have some water? And of course it's in their interests because they can't charge for tap water clearly to not serve it. So you know we. We always work quite hard to do that and, you know, I'll always look out for it and our events team will. But there are so many insidious things like that where they just want to pour alcohol down people's throats. And it's just so much not the norm to not drink at these events. It, it, it becomes such a thing when someone's not drinking that everyone's like, oh, what are, why aren't they drinking? And, and there's a lot of questions and almost suspicions thrown your way when, when you're the one not drinking. Um, and that's kind of the thing that I was trying to get across is, I like a drink as much as the next person, but it's just when it becomes to not drink is almost impossible. That's when it becomes a problem. I mean, I do recall not drinking at an industry event before and being asked flat out if I was pregnant. Yeah. So, I mean, that's inappropriate on on so many levels. But just to play devil's advocate, and it's not a view that I agree with, but I know it's a view that has been thrown at you in the comment thread, Josie. What about the accusation that, well, you don't have to drink, just don't drink, just get over it? Can you explain to those people who do say that why it's not as simple as that? I would say to those people it's a very similar response to what I would have if someone said, why are you moaning about having to wear makeup and dressing up and spending ages getting ready for work in the morning? You don't have to. You could just turn up, you know, wearing no makeup, wearing you know, average clothes is part of the culture. It's the same point. It's not that I'm being physically forced. No one is literally throwing alcohol down my throat, but it's part of a culture. And once you're within that culture, it becomes very difficult to break out of it without a lot of suspicion or strange comments. I'll tell you the one thing that I've maybe noticed a bit since I changed my habits slightly, because they, they were just, you know, it's second or third night in a row and I don't fancy a drink. And to me, it's then usually easier just to have none at all than one or two. And I found that rather than going through this sort of, sort of apologetic, oh, look, it's actually, it's my third night out or, or, you know, I'm just not, don't fancy it tonight or whatever it is. I'm just saying, no, I'm not drinking tonight and and leave it at that. And I found I, I'm a lot less challenged, like, because I, I think sometimes it's just people are natural. They're looking for a conversational opening. So they mm. will, they will sometimes take my, 
Ah, uh, look, I, I, God, it's been a big week. I think I might not tonight. They will take that as the opening gambit of a conversation. And they mean no harm by it, but they find themselves sucked into that habit. Whereas if I shut it down completely with, um, no thanks, or I'm not, that, not always, but I, I would say vastly reduces the number of times I feel challenged by my decision. I would say two things to that. One is, that's great, but no one's ever going to ask you if you're pregnant. Uh, so they've got one less question to throw at I you. No, I, <laughs> I have put on some weight. But, but the, the second thing is, and I think Josie, you may have addressed this in your piece, so I, I may be stealing it from you. And if so, apologies. A lot of the reason that people question it or want to keep talking about it is they're almost projecting onto you as the non-drinker when you're drinking and the person with you is not you start you do instinctively start to think oh well are they judging me because I've also been drinking every night this week does that make does that make me a problem drinker so you almost feel the need to force onto them like come on come on just do it so that you can feel justified in your borderline functioning alcoholic behavior and sort of shirk the guilt because everyone's doing it so please do it with me and and then it's okay and then I I think that's exactly where the problem lies is understanding that if someone else isn't drinking they're not judging you because you are drinking they're doing it for you know there could be so many reasons why someone's not drinking and I go into a little bit of why I have been questioning my own drinking recently in the piece which I'll put a link to the piece in this episode description Um, but yeah there's so many reasons why someone might not want to drink and it generally it isn't a good idea to ask them why and maybe just let them let them not drink and it will make events a lot easier for everyone if that was the norm i really liked your last line let's just have a cup of tea (laughs) i was gonna write coffee but i'm english so i like tea well on that note tim we actually do have some industry drinks to get to (laughs) we do we had better wrap it up there because we have industry drinks to get to because it's that time of year And just before we go, a little bit of housekeeping. Thank you for supporting the Mumbrella cast. If you haven't had a chance yet and you're thinking it's not that long to go to Christmas, how do I thank the people of Mumbrella for doing the Mumbrella cast all year? Well, there is a way you can thank us. Can we guess what that way is? Rating it. Yes. Yes. Ten points. That's so enthusiastic. That's so Ten points for Gryffindor. Well done. You can rate the Umbrella cast or write a review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcast, and we will be terrifically grateful. That is all for this week. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, Thanks Tim. Tim. Toodle pig.